Hallelujah. Whether you guys are ready for the word this morning, praise God. Let's uh, pray as we come to it. Father, I just thank you for your goodness and your great love. I'm so blessed, Lord, that we have your word, that we can study it today, that we can still learn today, Lord. And your word is ever, is, is ever effective today as it was 2,000 years ago. It has just as much power and it has just as so much ability to change men's lives as it did when it was penned. So, Father, I thank you as we dive into your word this morning that each and every one of us would grow, that our hearts would be open, our, our eyes would be open to receive what you have for us. Lord, none of us wants to be dull of hearing or dull of seeing. Lord, speak to us this morning. And I pray, Lord, that we would not just get a, an intellectual understanding of your word, but instead, Lord, that we would have a real revelation of what you are trying to say to us, that your word have its desired and intended effect in our lives. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. What did you guys uh, enjoy last week? We had uh, uh, Pastor Paul Neville come out and minister for, for Easter. So it was a good one, but we're going to get back on track and, and continue on in the book of 1 John. And uh, today, John is going to go ahead and continue on this, this idea and focusing on abiding in God or remaining in God. And this idea of abiding is being in fellowship with God and also the idea of God abiding in each and every one of us. And today he's going to focus on this idea of loving one another. You know, it's, it's uh, uh, funny as I was preparing for this and looking through it and, and really the book of First John is all about love, which is an awesome thing. But you realize as you read it, it is full of conditionals. Yes, it's about love and how good love is, but it begins to lay out this case that, that uh, if you don't love, John actually begins to question, are you really a Christian? Has God actually done something in your heart? Have you actually received what God has for you? Because the reality is, as we're going to see today, that it turns out if you don't love your brother, then it's impossible to love God. Did you know that? If you don't love your brother, it's impossible to love God. And that's something that's interesting because as Christians, one of the things, and, and I, I get it, there are times where we have moments, there are moments that I want to shake the Jesus into people, let me tell you. But the reality is, is that I, I still love them. And, and there are times that people are difficult and we have to move through that and get through that. That's not what he's talking about here. It's this idea of actually hating your brother to not actually having that same God love for them. But the reality is, is if, if we can't do that for one another, the, then John says it's impossible to love God. And he's going to begin to make that case now in 1 John verses, uh, chapter 4, verse 12 is where he starts. He says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. How many of you know sometimes when you're reading a translation of the Bible, you miss out on some of the nuance that was actually supposed to be there? Sometimes the, the words that are used have a little more meaning, or when you look at different parts of Scripture, you'll see words that are translated the same way, but really should have slightly different meanings. So, if we look at this, he says, no one has ever seen God. And when we see the word seen, you know, we, we think about that as, as seeing with our eyes because that's what the word means in English. No one has ever seen God. But 
if, and if we look at uh, John, the book of John, chapter 1, verse 18, you see something similar. It's a Greek word that's translated to see. In, in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 18, it says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made known Him, made Him known. And, and in, in, 1 John, or in John 1.18, this word there used for seeing is actually what we would kind of expect. It's, just, it's seeing with your eyes. He's saying that no one has ever seen God. No one has ever had God standing right in front of them. But here in 1 John 4.12, this idea of seeing God has much more meaning to it. The word here doesn't mean to just see with your eyes, but it means to gaze or behold with a sense of wonder. It means to contemplate or to see clearly. It implies like a careful observation or a close scrutiny. It's not talking about just seeing with our eyes, but it's actually talking about seeing uh, something more. The, the, the implication is much more explicit. It's not just physical sight, but seeing God in His unfeeled, unveiled essence, His glory, and His majesty. It's actually seeing God. You know what I mean? You know, I don't mean just to see God, but I mean to see God. You know, the, the emphasis we put on That's how you would translate it. You can't put that in words. But there's a slight difference is what he's talking about. Now, the reality is, is that the implication in John 1.18 is likely the same. But there's definitely a different choice of words here that make, that where John is making it more explicit what he's talking about. The reality is, is there's not a single man, a finite being, who has ever seen God in the way that John's referring here. There is a reason in the Old Testament that every time someone even comes in the presence of the angel of the Lord, they're worried that they're going to die. Because they recognize that you can't be in the presence of God and live. No finite being can be in his presence in that sense. And you might say, well, Pastor Wayne, didn't Moses look on God? You remember when he got in the crack and he had to cover his face and he could only look at God's back because he couldn't see his face? You realize there's a difference, right? He wasn't able to look on the full glory of God. Why? Because God said, you shall surely die. So he saw a, a portion that God allowed him to see, what God allowed to be revealed but then you might say, if you know your Bible, what about in Isaiah 6-1 when Isaiah saw God sitting on his throne? Which was once again just God choosing to reveal a portion of him. He wasn't actually looking straight upon the fullness of God. Anybody know what a theophany is? <laughs> in addition to Nick's daughter? <laughs> Hallelujah. A the theophany is... is is a revelation of God to man. It's what God has allowed us to see. It's an appearance of God to a person. But it's not the full revelation of God. It's not the fullness of God. It's only what he allows us to see. And that's what Isaiah saw. That's what Moses saw. They didn't see God in his fullness. Because had they done so, they would have died. The truth is, is our finite bodies can't exist in the presence of God. We don't know how to, to deal with that. Several years ago, before we ever planted this church, um, God, God gave me a dream. And the, the reason I'm telling you this is because I experienced the, the, the fullness of God more than I ever had before, and this is what happened. Um, it was before we planted the church, and, I, and, and God gave me this vision that, that I was standing on a stage 
And it was me and my pastor at the time, and actually the youth pastor at the time. And we were on a stage, and we were acting out a play. And in this play, I was an apostle. Now hear me, I was in a play, right? I'm not claiming I'm an apostle. I was in a play. But part of this is I had to sign a contract with God. And when I signed it, I was signing as an apostle in this play. And the interesting thing is when I signed the contract, my name, what I signed was 100%. And when I signed 100%, I felt the presence of God in my body so much that it hurt so bad that I had to ask God to stop. And this is just in a dream that God showed me, that, that I couldn't even withstand the full presence of God in a dream. I had to ask him to stop because the pain was unbearable. And this happened to me three times. And I believe that when I look back, and so there was more to it, but ultimately this was, this was me talking to God about coming out into ministry, and I was signing, I will give you 100%. But it wasn't just me signing. The, the, the contract was in return, that God was going to give me 100% as well. But every time, three times I signed this contract, I was filled with the presence of God so much that it physically hurt, and I had to ask God to stop. The truth is, none of us has ever seen the fullness of God because our finite beings cannot handle it. That's the reason why that, that, that when we're resurrected, we're getting a new body, a glorified body, one that can withstand being in the presence of God. But what we see, what Moses saw, what Isaiah saw, what I saw in my vision was what God allowed to be revealed. It wasn't a fullness of God. It was what God allowed to be revealed to us. But here's the thing. No one has seen God, but he says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The idea here, what John's speaking about is that, yes, no one has physically seen God, but they see God in us when his love is manifested in our lives. When we love one another, we're actually letting people see God. And notice that this is conditional. You're going to see a lot of this not only have we seen it in the book of John so far, 1 John, but you're going to see it today, all these conditions. He says, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. If we love one another, then we can know God abides in us. You know what that means? If, if we do, that means if you don't, the opposite is true. This indicates, this word if indicates the possibility that if we don't love one another, God doesn't abide in us. And I don't know about you, but that's kind of a scary thought. And John has, made, John has made the case over and over and over in this letter that how we love is an indication if we truly are a Christian. And I understand that, that some people don't like hearing this. So there's two things that I want to remind you. One, I didn't say it. John did. And two, sometimes we need to recognize that. Being a Christian is more than just showing up to church on Sunday and saying you're a Christian. That's just lip service. Anybody can say that they're a Christian. But the reality is, to really be a Christian, there's something that happens. There's some evidence in your life. There's something that is shown. Because of God's love in us, we're able to love one another. And when we love one another, God's love is manifest through us. But it says it's, his love is perfected in us. That means that his, his love has accomplished its goal in us when we love like he does. It is perfected in us because it allows us to love like he does. 
Because the reality is, is that our love, our own love, our earthly love is inadequate compared to the love of God expressed through us. It's not the same thing. And John continues on in verse 13, By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. We know that we, can, that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. And this, uh, by this, is referring to, to this part. We know that He abides in us. Why? Because He has given us His Spirit. And this is pretty, a pretty amazing thing because when we get born again, did you know that it's not just a decision? So many people think that when you accept Jesus in your life, it's all about coming up to the stage or raising your hand and, and saying that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. It's somehow an intellectual decision that you make. It's a choice of how you're going to live your life. And while we do make the choice, what actually happens is a miracle takes place inside of us when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm not talking about lip service. You can say it all day long. It's really about you putting it, your faith in Jesus Christ, trusting that he lived and he died for you, that he rose again, that he was the Son of God, and then in him you have the forgiveness of sins. It's not an intellectual decision only because a miracle takes place inside of you. The old you is removed and a new spirit is placed inside of you. The Spirit of God takes up residence inside of you and you are a brand new creation. And when we have this happen, we are actually able to know that we abide in Him and He in us. When this miracle takes place, we can know. And I, I do think that there's two parts to this. One part of it is an intellectual understanding that he abides in us. We can read the word, and intellectually we can understand. The word says that when you're born again, that you receive the Spirit of God. So intellectually, we know that if we receive the Spirit of God, then God does abide in us. Matter of fact, I think that's one of the greatest proofs that when you're born again, uh, something in you changes. Because the reality is, is that we can't be in the presence of God. Anything that is not pure, that is not holy, cannot exist in the presence of God because He is pure, He is holy. But if God lives inside of you, that says something about you. If the Spirit of God is in you, that says something about you, what God has accomplished in you because if He hadn't accomplished something in you, if He hadn't made you pure, if He hadn't made you holy, then the Holy Spirit couldn't live inside of you. But He does. And because we know this, intellectually we know that God abides in us. But also as believers, the flip side of that is that we should be conscious of the Spirit dwelling inside of us as well. It's one of those things when you recognize that you're not who you used to be. When I was young, I wanted to be a Christian and I didn't really understand it. I, I thought it was just the intellectual decision. I thought I was going to make a decision to follow Christ and then I, I chose to live life in a certain way and that's all there was to it. And I lived for 20 years on the start line of Christianity because I didn't understand that what I was actually doing was putting my trust in Jesus. There was something missing there. But then when I finally decided to put my trust in Jesus for real, to have that, that, that faith that actually changes who you are, then something happened inside of me. You see, before then, it was all about me doing the right things. After then, when I was changed, when I was a new creation, I began to recognize that when I kept my focus on Christ, the things that I was supposed to doing, be doing happened naturally. 
because I was changed. I wasn't trying to follow a checklist of stuff. Something happened inside of me. I was changed. There was a recognition of what happened inside of me was different. And I understood that, that, that there was something different, that the Spirit of God was inside of me, and it was impacting my life. We also know from Romans 8.16 that the Spirit Himself bears witness with us that we are children of God. As Christians, we should understand that the Spirit of God is inside of us, and we should also uh, have a consciousness of that as well. And because of this indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we can know not just in our mind, not just intellectually, but we can know spiritually that we abide in Him and He in us as well. Amen. And then in verses 14 through 15, he continues on. He says, We have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. And here, just like the verse before it, I didn't mention it, but the verse before it, this, this we here, Paul's not, or John's not talking about himself and the apostles. He's talking about himself and the readers. That includes us. The we includes all of us. And the, he uses it again here. And we, this doesn't just mean John. This means that we, John, the readers, and us today, he says, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And this is easy to understand from, from John's point of view because he was there, right? He walked with Jesus. Of course, John saw Jesus, but what about these readers? What about us? How can we see and testify because we weren't there? If you were there, you're really old. Like, really? <laughs> we haven't seen. None of us physically saw Jesus. But he includes this we, so how can we testify? And it's because of the love that we have for one another. This kind of love demonstrated as evidence of a changed life. And people's lives who were genuinely changed is evidence that God sent His Son to save them. We see the results of that salvation in their lives. We see what God has done in their lives. And because we see that, because we see that change, because we see that love in their lives, then we have seen and can testify that God sent His Son to be the Savior of the world because we have seen the result of His love. So that leaves us with a couple questions. Some of you might be thinking them right now. This love seems like a, a weak test because the first question you're going to have is, what about those who aren't saved that still love? Is that a fair question? You know people that aren't saved that still love their parents? They still love their friends? What, you know, and there's examples of love that are extremely strong. What about lifelong close friends? that have a bond that's even closer than family? What about um, members of fraternal organizations that have that strong bond? You know, firefighters, soldiers, police officers, where they would give their lives for one another. That seems like a, a pretty strong love. I mean, that's love, right? And the answer is yes, but it's love from an earthly perspective. It's not a God-like love. There is a difference between a God-like love and an earth-like love. Because in all of those cases we just mentioned, whether they want to admit it or not, that love is conditional. And you can say, oh no, I, I, would, never be, I, I would never stop loving my brother. You know, people in the, the, the firehouses or police organizations or soldiers. I was a soldier. I would have died for any one of those people that were serving beside me. And I would say, I would never stop loving them. 
But the truth is, is that they're just one grand betrayal away from destroying that bond. Because it's a different kind of love. It's conditional. Whether you want to admit it or not, it's conditional. People love and stop loving all the time from an earthly perspective. But God's love is different. A, a God-like love, a love that is, that is the, that love perfected from the Spirit of God abiding inside of you is different because that love forgives over and over and over. God's Son was betrayed to a greater degree than anybody that's ever lived on this earth, and God still forgave them. Jesus on the cross says, forgive them. The love that we should love one another with is so much greater than any love that springs from earthly affection or bonds. The next question that you might ask then is what about those who are Christians but don't actually display this love? And I think if we're going to be honest, and it's challenging, it's hard to hear this. But one, remember I didn't say it. But John would argue that if you don't actually love like this, then you're not a Christian. That's what he would say multiple times in this book. And he says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in him. This is not just idle words. This idea of, of confessing, uh, this idea of confessing that Jesus is the Son of God is not just um, something that we say. It's not just lip service. This, the reality of this, confessing that, that Jesus is the Son of God, what is entailed in this is that we believe that he lived, that he died for us. Not only do we believe that he lived and he died for the world, that he's the Savior of the world, but we believe that he's our personal Savior as well. That we personally trust him. And as a result of this personal trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, this results in him abiding in us and us in him. And the natural result of abiding like this is for a believer to live his life like the life he lives is not his own. That's like the reason why Paul said, it is not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Because there's a difference when God, Christ abides in you and God abides in you, you're going to see something different. And to see the result, of that, uh, and our, the result of that love in our life, that abidance in our life, is going to be obedience manifested in our life. It's going to be love manifested in our lives. That's what it looks like. Whoever confesses that Jesus is, like I said, it's not lip service. You can come up here and say that, that Jesus is my Savior and then live like he isn't. And rightfully, you should rightfully question, did you really make that decision? Because if God abides in you, something changes in you and him, if that fellowship is there. And then he continues on in verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So this so here, so it's basically John concluding over all the stuff that he just talked about. So he's saying, so in conclusion, this is how we believe, how we know and believe that God, the love God has for us. And once again, the we being used here is this one that's talking about all of us. In conclusion, all the stuff I just said is how we've come to know and believe that the love, in the love that God has for us. 
And because God has given us His Spirit, because we love one another as a result of Him abiding in us and us in Him, we know and believe the love that God has for us. Because it's not just something we heard one day, but we see it taking place. And we can know that it's true. We see the evidence of it every single day. You know, one of the things that people can ask, how do you know that you're saved? Well, I know because I was there when it happened. I know what finally happened when I said, God, I'm giving it all to you. Something inside of, of me changed. And like I said earlier, there was, there was a time in my life where I was, I was man, I, and I've told this story to some of you before, but I remember when I was a teenager, I smoked as a teenager, and uh, I knew it was wrong. I was trying to be a Christian. I wanted to be a Christian, but one, nobody had really taught me uh, at least I never paid attention to understand how this actually worked. I thought it was just about doing the right thing. You know, if you did the right thing, then you were a Christian. I didn't understand the relationship part. But I remember I would lay in bed at night asking the Lord to forgive me for all my sins, and I'd wake up the next day and just do them all again. And one of the things I remember thinking as I was smoking, I was 17 years old, and I'm smoking, I shouldn't have been, and I was just thinking, at least when I'm 18, it won't be illegal anymore. That's at least one less sin because I didn't understand it. The thing is, though, when I finally put my trust in God, all those things that I was trying to do but failed, instead I began to focus on God, spend time in His Word, spend time in His prayer. I began to abide in Him, and He began to abide in me, and you know what happened? All of a sudden, I didn't want to do all those things. It turns out that when you put your trust in God, you're free from the slavery of sin. They don't have control over you anymore, and your mind gets renewed. So people go, how do you know you were saved? Because I was there. I know who I used to be. If you knew who I used to be, you would know that I was saved as well. You would have no doubt, because I'm not who I used to be. And that is evidence. That's how we know. I know of God's love for me because I've seen what His love for me has done in my life. And I've seen what it's done for each and every one of you in your lives as well. It's made a difference. And in verse 17, he goes on, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as He is, so also are we in this world. So by this, by, by us abiding in Him and, and Him abiding in us as evidence, this abiding in love as evidence for God abiding us and us in Him, because of this, because we see this evidence, we can have confidence for the day of judgment. That's what it's saying here. By this love perfected in us, that's the abiding in love and Him in us and us in Him and the evidence of that or how we live our lives and how we love for one another. If we see that change in our lives, like I said, I know I'm saved because I know who I was. I see the change. I see what's happened because of that. I know that what God said has is, is, is happened. I know I can trust that His Son is my Savior because something has happened. And it says, because of this, we may have confidence for the day of judgment. You see, God's love for us is accomplishing its goal in us. That's that perfecting in us. God's love is accomplishing its goal in us as we manifest his, his love for one towards another. And that's the reality. We're not just supposed to be forgiven. 
We are intended to be changed. We're intended to be made brand new. We're not who we used to be. We are a new creation. There should be evidence. And when we see that evidence, we can know that we're saved. It's one of the greatest things about Christianity. It's the only religion that I'm aware of that you can know that you're saved. Every other one is, is you're, you're trying to do all the right things, right? You're trying to hit the checklist. Kind of how I was treating Christianity when I was younger. Trying to hit the checklist. In every other religion, you're trying to do all the right things to make yourself right with God. And in the end, you hope that your scale balances out. That your, your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. But the, the reality is, as a Christian, we can know that we're saved. Because how many know that when you stand before judgment seat, there is no scale? You're either saved or you're not. We can know that we're saved not only because we can take God at his word, but because we can see the evidence of his love being perfected in us and accomplishing its purpose in us by how we live our lives, how we treat one another. And as, as a result of that, we can have confidence for the day of judgment. Do you know as believers that you have passed out of judgment? That's what John 5.24 says. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes... Him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. You see, knowing that you abide in God and God abides in you should give you great freedom. That means we don't have to fear death. Do you, do you get that? We don't have to fear death. We don't have to fear what's coming after that. We don't have to fear standing in front of our holy and righteous judge, our creator. We don't have to fear that. Because we pass out of judgment. Because the day when judgment comes, because of the work of Christ on the cross, we are already pure, we're perfect, we are holy. Now this doesn't mean that we've attained perfection in this life. Trust me, I know. I still do things that aren't perfect. I'm, I know that's shocking to you guys. And that's understandable. Because... I know when you look up here, you just see the epitome of Christianity. But it turns out that I make mistakes from time to time. More often than I would like to admit. And the reality is we all do. Paul said, Paul, probably the one that we could say is the closest to ever attaining it, says, I have not attained it yet. I am not yet perfect. So even though inside, spiritually, we are perfect. We are pure. We are, because of the work Jesus Christ did on the cross, our spirit is perfect. It just takes a little while for our body to catch up to what has already happened inside of us. So he's not talking about this, we pass out of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. That doesn't mean that we walk perfect because sometimes we don't. But what it does mean is that we stand in relation to God the same way that Christ does. As Jesus was in this world and his relationship with God, that's how we are, our relationship with him. So on the day of judgment, we can stand before the judgment seat without fear because Jesus already atoned for all of our sins. He already paid for every one of our failures. He's already taken care of all of those things. So we can stand there without fear knowing that we've passed out of judgment. This allows us to look forward to the future with confidence, even knowing the judgment is coming. That means we cannot have fear, and that's an amazing thing. And he continues on in verse 18, because there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. 
See, the reason that we have no reason to fear is because of our relationship with God. It's completely based on love. One of my favorite illustrations that talks about fear is this, uh, and the funny thing is I was trying to find it yesterday. I can't find it. So this is off of memory. So it's not as, as uh, good storytelling as the first time that I read it out. But this, the, the idea is this, there's this soldier, and he's traveling across the ocean, and he's got his wife and his kids with him, and this horrific storm comes upon them. And as it gets worse and worse, his wife begins to be, become terrified and almost hysteric, and she's, she's coming up to her husband, and she's, she can't understand because he's still standing there in, in what seems to have, to have peace, and he's stoic. He's not freaking out. He's not afraid, and she doesn't understand, and this is actually making her worse. She's upset. How is it that you're not concerned? How is it that you don't care? We're about to perish in the storm, and it seems like you don't even care, and she's upset, and finally, when, he, when, when he's heard this for a, a, a long time, he pulls out a sword, and he sticks it to her stomach. And he looks at her and he says, are you afraid? And she says, no, I'm not afraid. And he says, why aren't you afraid? And she said, because the one who holds the sword, I know loves me and I love him. And he said, then why are you asking me to be afraid of God who holds the storm in his hand? You see, when we, we have a relationship, God, with a trust, we don't have to be afraid for what's coming. We have nothing to fear because we can trust our God. Because he is faithful. And the implication that John is making here, perfect love casts out fear, the implication that he's making is that fear and love are incompatible. You actually can't have both. Because the reality is, is that love drives out fear. When you know that, that, that God is there for you, that you're not going to have to face judgment, that you have eternal life, how many of that, you don't have any reason to fear death? Because his perfect love for us should cast that fear out because we know that we can trust him. And the reality is, is that if we're still concerned, if we're afraid of punishment on the day of judgment, then God's love hasn't yet completed its work inside of us. We don't have a full revelation of what's actually going on. If you're afraid of one day standing before your creator and judge, it's because you have not fully understood the reality of God's love for you and what that entails. And if you don't have that, begin to ask God to show it to you. Because it's one thing to have an intellectual understanding. I can draw you the equation of God's love on a piece of paper and you can see it in black and white, but, but if you don't have that in your heart, if you haven't got a hold of that in your spirit, you'll never have a full revelation of what that is. And you'll be in fighting with yourself. But it says, but why do I feel differently? Ask God to show you the reality of his love. Because we can know. We can live without fear. His perfect love casts out all fear. Amen? And then in verse 19, he says, we love because he first loved us. The truth is, is that our loving, our ability to love is because of God. Like I said, I'm not talking about earthly love. I'm not talking about that conditional love. I'm talking about the ability to love people fully, like God loves people. The ability to, to forgive people as they repent over and over and over again. The, the ability to forgive people that hurt you and to love them and to be them, even at great inconvenience to yourself. That kind of love that doesn't have a condition, the kind of love that never gives up, the kind of love that never stops. We can do that because of God. 
Now, it might be understandable to still have fear like we were talking about if the love we expressed weren't reciprocal. Could you imagine that? Like I said before, we can know because God loved us and he showed his love in his son, but what if we didn't know? What if God didn't love us and we were, we were trying to fill up that measure, that scale, thinking that I'm going to love him, but I don't know if he's going to love me back. I'm going to love others. I don't know if that's going to make a difference then maybe having fear would be understandable because it's not reciprocal or maybe because we think we're earning it in some way, shape, or form. But the reality is, is that he loved us first. We don't have to wonder if he's going to love us back. We don't have to be afraid that what we're going to do is not enough because he did everything already, amen? He did it first. So we don't have any fear of a one-way flow of love. And the truth is, is if we don't have the ability to love with a God-like love, John would say that God is not in you. His love being perfected in us is what allows us to love like that. And in verse 20 it says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen, sorry, his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. John has been very clear as we've gone through this, this letter about our relationship between how we behave and how we live and our relationship with Christ. It was only last chapter that John said this in, in 1 John three eighteen through 19, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Not just in deed and in talk. You can look like you love somebody. You can say all the right things. But that's not what it's about. He says, not, don't let us just love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. That means that we really love people and how we live our lives, our actions, what we do, makes a difference. To say that you love with words only, but to inwardly believe otherwise, he says that makes you a liar. You can't say, I love God and hate your brother. They're, they're incompatible with one another. You remember that when we started this lesson today, this, this passage, it says, he said that uh, we can see God when we see our love manifest in others, when we see his love manifest in others. God, we've never seen God physically, but we can see him by our love. And that's what he says here. But if you can't love your brother who's right in front of you, your brother whom you have seen, if you can't love him, particularly if he's demonstrating that love of God, how are you going to love a God whom you've not seen? And if you don't love your brother, it's impossible to love God. That's what he says. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not. The truth is, is that love for God and a hatred for your brother cannot coexist in the same heart. Amen? And we'll finish today in verse 21. It says, In the commandment that we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Loving your brother is not just a spiritual requirement and it's not just simply a byproduct of a changed heart although certainly it is but it's not simply that it is also a command this is a command from the lord jesus christ to love your brother 
which means it's not optional. If you declare that He is your Lord, then it's not optional. And that's why Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Because if it really was your Lord, you would do what I say. And the commandment is to love your brother. The truth is, is that loving God and loving your brother are actually part of the same commandment. And the great part about it is, is if you do those two things, the entirety of the law, the entirety of everything that God expects from us will be fulfilled if you love God and you love your brother. If you love your brother, you won't lie to them. If you love your brother, you won't kill them. You won't steal from them. You won't want what's theirs. And if you love God, you're not going to put anything else in front of Him. Amen? They're part of the same commandment. And you can't do one without the other. And when we choose to disobey this command, it actually shows, shows a, a disingenuine love for God. It calls into question the love of God we say we have if we choose to disobey the command to love our brothers. So church, I want to encourage you and, and myself as well. Let's be a people who do love our brothers. And, and by brothers, that means one another, that we love one another, even when we tick each other off, even when we make a mistake, even if we do something hurtful, because Lord knows we're going to do that stuff to one another. The reality is, is that there'll be times in our walk together over the years that I will likely hurt you. And I'd like to say ahead of time, I'm sorry for that. I can, I can guarantee I didn't intend to do it, but the reality is that it happens. The question is, how do we handle it? Do we respond with hate or do we respond with love and forgiveness? Let's be a people who abides in Him, in He and us, letting His love be perfected in us as we love one another. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our heads.